everyone, and welcome to Catching Up on Crime with Melinda. I am actually sitting here in Chicago this time with Jenna. So Hi, everyone. I am visiting Jenna and my other daughter, celebrating my granddaughter's first birthday. So it's nice to it's nice to be sitting side by side. It is, yeah. Well, they are here for Ariella's first birthday, but they're also here to skip out on this winter weather and go to Jamaica. So I am happy to be here, but I'm also extremely jealous that they get to fly to Jamaica on Sunday, but that's exciting. And I got you a new book for your plane ride. I bought my mom a book called Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, which is a book written by my favorite podcasters, Georgia Hardstark and Karen Kilgariff. So that's a little recommendation for anyone who likes true crime podcasts like this one. My favorite true crime podcast is called My Favorite Murder. But I'm all caught up on that, and I'm all caught up on other things as well. Don't you um, hate it when you get all caught up yeah, on podcasts? Yeah, it's like... Because, like, I binge them. Yeah. And, and then so, you're like, what do I do? <laughs> right. And then you're like, how long are you gone for? Like, how long are you yeah. gone? So I was actually thinking that. I meant to tell you this. You know, this podcast is super fun, and we do it for fun, and we do it to catch up on crime together. This is literally what we do. But I was kind of thinking, gosh, there's so many true crime podcasts out there. Like, does the world really need another one? But then when, like, I'm caught up on pretty much all my favorite true crime podcasts, and, like, My Favorite Murder is my favorite one, it's like, there's only two a week. You know what I mean? Like, I actually could use, like, one a day. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know? And you last time recommended that we watch the Aaron Hernandez documentary. Did you watch it? So good. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was mind blown. It sends you through so many emotions, which is just cool. We've talked about that before. Like, crime can be fascinating, but for us, like, there can be fascinating aspects of it, or maybe even some horrific aspects that kind of intrigue you. The Aaron Hernandez story, doesn't it like just, it makes you think like you don't like him. Oh, but you feel sorry for him. And then you, I don't know, like, I'm not trying to say anything, but it just gives you all parts of it Mm -hmm. and it helps you to understand it a little more. And I just think for anybody, if we can understand each other a little yeah, better it's in very anything. thought provoking. Yeah. And I actually called my mom right when I finished as I usually do with anything like this. Yes. And we'll talk on the phone for like hours, <laughs> just dissecting everything. And it feels sometimes like, why do we do that? But at the same time, I think it's because it's good for us as humans to be thinking about things like right. this. Like it's not okay for things like this to happen and to just be like, well, that happened. He's going to get what he deserved. Well, you know what I right. mean? Like we have to be thinking about these things and how they affect people and what's right and what's wrong. Um, Cause there's a lot of gray area in between. Exactly. And you know, if you listen or you go on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and there, there might be something going on in your community or whatever. And people are just like, Oh, just, you know, sends into life or, you know, or even nastier things. And I'm just one that sits there and goes, but do you know the true story? Mm-hmm. Do you know what happened? Do you know what was behind it? And it may or may not justify it, but I still think it's important. If you don't like crime, okay, but still we can't condemn people. We can't just automatically, without knowing, we can't just put them in a box and say, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. So yeah, I'm caught up on everything. I finished that documentary, but I was thinking if, because everyone that follows our Facebook and our Instagram at Catching Up on Crime are true crime fans, 
Um, if anyone has recommendations for a new podcast that's easy to listen to, I would love to hear them. Or even, I mean, there's, I know there's a lot of true crime like on Netflix right now, but I like when someone recommends something because sometimes yeah. I'll start watching it and I'm like, I've watched, I've started to watch some and they just, they aren't great. And then I was not going to watch the Aaron Hernandez right. one and you told me to and I loved it. So yeah. I love when anyone recommends something because they know me or they know they've yeah. watched it so I don't have to if it's bad. But um, yeah, if anyone could leave recommendations for us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, that would be awesome. I would love that. And please recommend us as well to your family, friends, whoever, and give us a five-star review because I guess unlike Jenna, I'm planning on retiring on this thing. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's more than just fun. No, really, it's just kind of fun. But we'd love for you guys to recommend us. Uh, hopefully you are enjoying it and we've had some really good feedback. It's been fun to talk to some of my friends about it because I've found friends that I didn't even know were true crime fans. And then it's kind of like, oh my gosh, like, let's get excited. Right. Isn't that funny? Like sometimes people are just even afraid to say yeah. they like true crime because like, who should like true crime but like I said I, there is value in it which then kind of leads us into today's story I think it's it's not a cut and dried story there's a lot of aspects to it there's there's a lot of parts and pieces and unless you take the time to hear it you just might condemn someone who doesn't need that yeah well I'm excited let's hear it all right Okay, Jenna, so today we're actually going to do our first listener-requested case, and this case was requested from Augie, who works with your dad, um, so he works at Interstates and Sioux Center, so hi, Augie, and thanks for recommending this case. Okay, so this is the case of Dixie Schreiber, but most of you know her as Dixie Shanahan Duty. So Dixie Schreiber was born in 1967 in Muscatine, Iowa. Are you going to tell us why she's known like that? Why would we know her like Shanahan duty popsicle? <laughs> because that's what, if you look at this case up, you got to look it up under her married name. So she was born as Dixie Schreiber. Is that a nickname? <sighs> okay, so what, which one's her married name? The popsicle duty? Okay, so this is the case of Dixie Schreiber, but most of you will have heard about her, if you've heard about her, from her name Dixie Shanahan Duty. So Dixie Schreiber was born in 1967 in Muscatine, Iowa, to Darlene Schreiber. Now, I couldn't find the name of her biological father anywhere, so I don't know who her father was. Anyway, her mother later married Frank Street. When she was a young girl, she told adults that her stepfather, Frank Street, was molesting her, but nobody would believe her. Frank later admitted to sexually abusing not only Dixie, but her other four stepsisters as well. So Frank was convicted of sexually abusing Dixie along with four other stepdaughters. She was 14 years old when she started dating Scott Shanahan. When her mother left her stepfather due to these sexual abuse allegations, she moved to Illinois. Her mom did. Her mom moved to Illinois. Dixie did not want to move, so she moved in with Scott and his parents, um, and she was only 15 at this time. So she was 14 years old when she started dating Scott Shanahan, and again, they moved in together at 15. 
but she was living then with him and his parents. Scott's parents passed away and then they got married at the age of 27. So they actually dated a long time before they really got married. Um, because they, like I said, they were 14 years old when they started dating and then they were 27 when they actually got married. Several reports of friends and family state that Scott was very abusive and had a temper with a short fuse. People Dixie worked with attempted to hide her several times. A co-worker assisted her to get an apartment after he was arrested, but after he was released, she went right back to him. He was charged twice with domestic assault, and the court records state that he tied Dixie up and punched her in the face, as well as slamming her head in the door multiple times. Many people recall seeing multiple bruises on her face and wrists on several different times. Dixie moved to her sister's in Texas on three different occasions, and each time Scott came there for her. She has stated that Scott tied her wrists with barbed wire and pointed a shotgun at her head, also on numerous occasions. Scott and Dixie had two children, and she found out that she was pregnant with their third in August of 2002. Now, Scott was not happy about this at all, and he threatened to kill her and the baby. He started beating her, and according to Dixie, he beat her for three days. And on the third day, he told her that by the end of that day, she would no longer be alive. She states that he took the phones so she could not call 911. And the reason I say that she states this is because in another statement that I read, she also talked about how she didn't want to call 911 because she didn't think that they would help her at all. She was afraid that by calling 911, that would make him even more upset and the abuse would be worse. So those are kind of contradicting statements. So I'm not sure if, like she said, that he unhooked the phone so that she couldn't call 911 or in fact, she just didn't want to call 911. Anyway, she also states that he was awake and coming after her when she actually shot him. Again, this is only the account of Dixie that he was awake. All of the other accounts or evidence seem to state that he was actually sleeping. So on August 30, 2002, Dixie shot Scott in the back of the head. And again, this is after she stated that she had endured three days of abuse by him. And by most reports, this was while he was sleeping. At this time, she was 36 and he was 39 years old. So again, they got married when she was 27. So this is nine years later. So, you know, on her accounts and on pretty much everybody's account in the town, for nine years, she had been severely abused by her husband. And nine years later, she shot him. After she shot him, though, she and her children remained living in the home while she just left the dead body rotting in his bed. She stated she kept the bedroom door locked and placed chairs in front of the door so that the kids would not enter. She never went back in. She further stated she opened the window in the bedroom, which she later closed from the outside when it got too cold. She used candles and air fresheners to block out the smell. She stated, quote, I blocked it out in my mind. The bedroom didn't exist. Scott didn't exist. He left town and the shooting never even happened, end quote. She simply told people in the community and her friends that he had left. No one really seemed to care that he was gone. No one seemed to question it. Seven months after that, she gave birth to their third child. She forged his signature and checks and sold his vehicle, tractor, and shop in which he used to restore vintage cars. 
She started dating Jeff Duty, and he was in the home on multiple occasions. Throughout this time also, um, the police were in and out of the home too. Jeff Duty was quoted as, you know, saying that he never thought anything of it. He never thought anything of the fact that he couldn't go in the bedroom or that the bedroom was locked. He never smelled anything. Yeah, so according to him, there was nothing unusual about the house. In July 2003, someone notified the sheriff with concerns over Scott's disappearance. It was reported that this was due to Dixie telling one of her friends that she had in fact killed him. She actually then went into the sheriff to see if she was a suspect and they told her no. But even then, she didn't get rid of the body, move the body, or do anything. Um, at that point, it's been, uh, so she killed him in August and this is in July. So it's been 11 months. What? Yes. So she's lived 11 months in this house with her kids and then also this body. In so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where she slept. I guess she slept on the couch from then on. And no one questioned it. And what I also thought was, like, when you think about this, like, all the shows you watch, that it just has such an odor. And mm -hmm. I don't know how candles and air fresheners could mask that order well, and but especially like she said she had the window open and there's multiple cases i've heard of where neighbors will actually say this house smells terrible can someone right. check it out so for the window to be open and no one to smell it or be like what in the world is going on is pretty insane for almost a year right and also because like she shut the window in the winter but that's when i think it wouldn't smell you know like the cold would kind of maybe mask that smell outside. But if it's hot outside mm -hmm. and you've got this body rotting, yes, I would, I would have thought too that it would have smelled outside. But yeah. yes, we're almost a year later. And then in fact, it was in October of 2003 that the police go to search the house and find Scott's body. And the body was still in the bed that he was shot in. It was reported that he's like in a fetal position, he's under the sheet, you know, of course there's bugs, he's, you know, he's rotting. And this was brought up at trial as, like I said, the way they could prove that he was sleeping in bed when she shot him and he was not coming after her, mm -hmm. um, like she said. Okay, so now on October 20 of 2003, Dixie was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. So this is 14 months later. Police come in and search the house 14 months later, find the body, and she is arrested. Once she was arrested, the townspeople actually raised her $15,000 for her bail. She was showered with food and support and people volunteered to watch her children. They had little, you know, if you've been to little towns in the, a lot of the gas stations, they'll have like little cans or whatever, coffee cans, and then they'll have a picture on the front yeah. and say donate to this cause. Well, that's what happened here. They were actually having people donate to Dixie's bail and they didn't make bail for her. The people really supported her. And as all these people in this town, and again, this is just a little town, so they're, they all know each other, and, but they could choose sides too. And really this town was not divided in any way. Like they were pretty much all supporting Dixie. On the other hand, as many people that were supporting Dixie, there were only four people that attended Scott's funeral. He really didn't have any family at this time. You know, his parents had died and so forth, but yeah, only four people. That seems nice. Like it seems, oh, they're, you know, coming together to help her. But at the same time, so clearly they knew that she was being abused if 
Right. If when they found out, they're like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. You know what I mean? So why didn't anyone do anything? Like, Well, it sounded like they did. I mean, like her coworkers tried to help her. They tried to hide her. She, they tried to help her get to her sisters several times in Texas, but he would come there and get her. And, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about that kind of at the end of that domestic violence cycle, so to speak. So, but anyway, so the townspeople did, yes, they made her bail and she actually remarried. So she married this Jeff Duty two weeks before trial. Charles Toman, the assistant county attorney general, stated that she had every opportunity to leave. And he brought that up in trial. Okay, so at trial, the both parties agreed, both sides agreed that she was abused by Scott. So neither one tried to say that that wasn't a fact. So that was a fact. However, like I said, the assistant county attorney believed that, you know, that she could have left him. She could have called 911 even this day. She could have gotten out of the house. Um, she had alternatives rather than shooting him. The prosecution also stated that they were not so sure that the motive was the domestic violence and stated that the motive may have been that Scott inherited $150,000 from his parents when his parents died. In August 2002, there was less than $3,000 left. When the neighbor who purchased this tractor, like I said, the, she you know, forged his signature and sold all his stuff, and the neighbor who purchased the tractor was questioned, and he stated he knew Scott would be upset about the sale. So he said if he ever came back, he would return the tractor. Dixie's response to this was to assure him that Scott was never coming back. Again, the prosecution tried to make it that maybe the motive was money rather than the domestic violence. They also talked about how in order for it to be like self-defense, because it's a domestic violence thing, the threat has to be real and it has to be eminent, meaning happening right at that moment. And clearly if he was in bed sleeping, he was not an eminent threat to her at that very moment, but she still chose to shoot him. The defense, however, put over 30 witnesses on the stand to state that they knew about the abuse and they knew the domestic violence that Dixie had endured throughout her nine years of marriage. So the prosecution is saying there was an immediate threat to her life, but I just like, and I get that because that is kind of the only reason for self-defense is you feel like you're going to die. So someone's going to kill you. So you kill them. But I feel like if, if a woman is in this situation, like imagine what would happen if she tried to kill him and failed, he would kill her. Absolutely. Yeah. So how is there any way for her to get out of that situation when it's, when he's threatening her? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that would be the only and way for her to do it because it's obviously if he's been beating her and beating her, he's got some kind of power over her. She's probably bigger than her, you know, and right. she can't defend herself. And I think that's a huge part of domestic violence is it's not only the immediate because it's gone on for nine years in this case mm -hmm. that abuser has some kind of mental power, not power, but probably control or yeah, over yeah. that a victim. Yeah. And you know, and, and the thing is to me too, is she is a victim, not only at the time he's abusing her. He's a, she's a victim this whole nine years. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like Wednesday, she's a victim because he's abusing her. And then Thursday he's not. 
or excuse me, she's not a victim because he's not abusing her. She's a victim throughout the whole thing. Um, I do get, you know, why the law states that because, you know, they, they want to make sure that people aren't just going around hurting other people and just claiming, you know, oh, it was self-defense when really there was no danger at the time. But that's what a lot of people do bring up and especially domestic violence cases is it might not be imminent danger at that time, but in their mind Mm -hmm. it is because it always is. And it kind of, I think of it in a way that's like, so if someone kidnaps a teenager and is holding her captive for years and she somehow manages to kill him in his sleep, everyone would be like, great, you got out of that, you know? Right. And that's a good example. I never thought that's about that. That's kind of how her situation. She, she feels helpless, powerless. She probably feels like she's trapped. Right. Like someone who's kidnapped is trapped. And if you kill your kidnapper, then good for you. You got out of that. But if someone who's been abused for years and years and years does it, then it's like, oh, well, you killed your husband, you know, and that's, that's a very good example. I've never even thought about it that way. Okay. So then on April 30th, 2004, Shelby County jury found Dixie guilty of second degree murder and sentenced her to 50 years. And she was ineligible for parole for 35 years. So she was charged with first degree murder, which requires planning. First degree murder, you know, like it was yeah, intentional. intentional, you planned it for a while and you went out and did it. Uh, second degree can be like a reckless murder or like a spur of the moment murder, something that you didn't plan out and intentionally do, you know, and some people in this case too is like, you know, yes, she intentionally did it, but I think we can agree that she. I don't think planned this. Like she didn't for days know that this was going to happen. It wasn't something she wanted to do. Cause yeah. usually with first degree, that's, I think of killers, you know, people right. who they want to kill, they, they go off to looking. Kill. And then second degree, I always think of kind of as something happened and it, you know, it's still someone killed someone. You know what I mean? This doesn't necessarily mean second degree is okay, but right. Right. It's just a, a mindset again yeah. of how that happened. There was a juror, Susan Benson Blaine, who stated after the trial, quote, she sympathized with Dixie as a domestic abuse victim herself, but the evidence was so strong that Scott was not battering her at the time of his death. She further stated she knew from her own experience that victims can get out of these relationships, end quote. However, she did leave the courthouse that day in tears. She said that she... And many of the other jury did find her guilty of the second degree murder, but did not ever think that she was going to be sentenced to that long of a time. So she was very, very upset by the sentencing as well as many of the other jurors. So Dixie was sent to the Iowa Correctional Institute for Women in Mitchellville, Iowa. In a press conference shortly after the conviction, Dixie stated that if she could do it over again, she still would pull the trigger. So at that point in time, people point out that she really had no remorse. And again, I know that, you know, it's been over a year since she actually shot him, but going through it all in trial and just going through all of this in life, I think that she was still in that state of mind. I'm not an expert on battered women at all, but I do know that it takes more than just the person being gone 
to get over it. There's a lot of, you know, PTSD involved. There's usually a lot of therapy that has to happen before a a person gets well. And so at this time, basically she's saying that she would do it all over again. Battered women's syndrome is often compared to PTSD in the way that it well psychological and it doesn't go away. PTSD does not go away when you, whatever trauma happened is over. You're going right. to, ha- it's, it's on current or it's reoccurring. Yeah. And there's things I think that can trigger you. I think you can having, I think that you can be doing well, but then there's also triggers maybe years later, you know? So after the trial, Dixie's attorney, Greg Steensland stated, quote, a bad message to battered women who find themselves in inescapable situations, end quote. That was his take on not only the conviction, but a lot due to the sentencing again. um, And we'll kind of talk about that in a little bit too, but it's not really that people didn't think she was guilty because she, you know, she admitted to shooting him. It's just a matter of that large sentence of 50 years not being eligible for parole until 35. Dixie applied for a commutation of her sentence in July of 2004, and this was denied by the Iowa Board of Parole in October of 2006. They cited her failure to assume responsibility and behavior issues in prison. So one, I'm not sure why it takes that long to have them respond to it. That's almost two years. Two, I think at that point she did not take on responsibility yet, but there's different ways of looking at that too. Like she took on responsibility right away. She didn't, never denied shooting him. Um, she didn't try to blame it on something else. She always stated she shot him. And then the prison or the behavior issues, everything that I looked up on this and it was reported that her behavioral issues were very, very minor. Um, in fact, one was just having chewing gum in herself. That's strange also. Like, yeah, what does responsibility mean? Because responsibility and remorse are completely different things. And it sounds like they want her to be remorseful. Right. Rather than responsible. She's taking responsibility for what she did. She's just saying, I would do it again. Right. Shortly before leaving office, Governor Tom Vilsack commuted her sentence and set aside the parole board's recommendations so that she only had to serve 10 years before being eligible for parole. Um, And this was in January of 2007. So it was, you know, a few years after the parole board denied it. And then he agreed to that. So um, she only had to serve 10 years before being eligibility for parole, which then ultimately means that she is eligible because she's already served 10 years. Then also in an interview in 2007 with Dixie, She stated she had done some soul searching and realized that what she did was wrong. And she stated, quote, I had no right to take his life, end quote. So I think we kind of see that transition that maybe they were looking for, but hopefully was also real from her that she went to that remorseful state. And again, I don't think she needs to be like, I don't, I don't want to, I want to say completely remorseful, but I don't know what that means. But you know, I think she is probably right in that, in that context that she didn't have the right to take his life. And I think that's probably best for her to realize that at that moment, maybe she did have some alternatives, but at that moment, she didn't realize that. I think that's, what's more important in my mind is for a woman like women like that to, Cause you know, 
I get so frustrated with like some of my friends who I think their boyfriends aren't great, you know, and I try to tell them, but they just don't listen. And that's what makes me mad. Like, so people are trying to help her and she's not letting them. I'm almost more mad at the fact that she would let people who love her help her than I am at the fact that she healed her husband. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's just, and that's like, that's what starts the whole battered women syndrome because she's forcing herself to believe there is no other option. And I do think that we have come a long way as a society in this issue too. If you go back, you know, many, many years, I think the options for this were much more limited. Mm -hmm. And also at a time when sometimes people didn't even believe you or that kind of thing. But currently we have a lot of resources in place and I think our society is in belief of this. Like if someone says it, it's not that they have to be a low income family or, you know, all these stereotypes of what maybe domestic violence households look like. They can be, you know, super rich, whatever. They can have great jobs. They can be really great guys or men out in the community and then in their home still be abusive. And we've come a long way with realizing that. So Dixie was actually granted work release by the Iowa Board of Parole. Um, This was last June or June of 2018, I should say. And this was a huge step for her to go forward into getting paroled. So this work release center will actually be the one to recommend her for parole. I, for one, kind of hope that comes soon. So she's been doing this for a year and a half on the work release and has had no issues She's also, you know, obviously served that 10 years. I would anticipate that she would come up for a parole soon. While in prison, Dixie wanted her kids to be raised by her new husband, Jeff, but this was denied by the juvenile court since he had a criminal record and had neglected his own kids. I don't know what that looked like or what that means. I did some research and just couldn't find anything. So, so the kids did go into foster care for a short time until the paperwork and all of that could get ready and be completed. And then they did go live with her sister in Texas. And that's where they currently live. In a article that I read, Dixie stated that even when she does get out, she's not going to even try to get custody back of her kids just because they've lived with her sister for so long and they've established their lives there that she's willing to let them remain there. So this case brings about a lot of important issues. I think the one thing that people are maybe most fascinated by this case and why it's it's actually been on the show Snapped. I don't know if you ever watched that. So it's been on that show where I got my information from was articles in the Des Moines Register and the Sioux City Journal, as well as Murderpedia. Have you ever been on Murderpedia? (laughs) It's like, yeah, (laughs) that's a pretty awesome site. Anyway, that's where I got most of my information. One of the huge fascinations with this case and why I think it was on Snapped is because she killed her husband and left him in the house for over a year. Right. Well, that's what is makes me think she psychologically got a lot of issues because there's something going on just because like when you said she shut the door and she said, like she quoted, she was quoted saying, you know, I've pretended that room and he didn't exist at all. That's like, you can't really do that. And he's still there. So you're doing that 
your brain is telling you it doesn't exist, but it does. And that's a psychological issue. And I believe that that's how she had to have I mean, done it because like even she had police in the house and that didn't trigger like, okay, the next day I need to get this body out of here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or she has her boyfriend there mm -hmm. and it doesn't trigger something. So I really do believe her mind went to a place of yeah. it, it didn't happen. And, and for maybe months, months, who knows when she, you know, kind of figured out it did happen. I, I don't know, but I do believe that for months she lived like it just mm -hmm. never happened and he was never existed. The only thing is I do question sometimes is now the kids were younger. And of course, you know, her youngest she had after he even was killed. But did they not ever say where's daddy or anything like that that would cause her to, you know? Yeah. And we'll never know because obviously everything that leading up to his murder was all we know is what she's told us. So I wonder, I always wonder with stuff like this, like, was he abusing the kids? Cause then would they, wouldn't they just kind of be a relief? Maybe yeah, that he wasn't there. Maybe so they were too young. Still, then. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I also questioned that again, this is a small community and she just told them all that he left. And when like probed further, like she just basically kind of said that he left with another woman and he's living in like, I don't remember what the other town was called, but like a town nearby. That's kind of weird for me because, you know, we lived in, I live in a smaller community. And if you just said that somebody went down to a town, even 50 miles, 60 miles away, I think you'd see some connection still remain. That's all very strange. He must have, he had to have had zero friends. That's, yeah. Because even if he had someone, a coworker or something that was even a little bit suspicious and texted him and never got a text back and maybe called him and never got a call back, wouldn't you go to the police? Right. And if he only moved that short of a distance, that's what I'm saying. Someone would have maintained contact. Right. Like, exactly. He wouldn't just fall off the face of the earth when he moved. Right. Like if you move, you know, all the way to Arizona, like some people think they need to do that. When I move all the way to Arizona? <laughs> yeah. But you know, then I can see maybe people not questioning it as much because they, they might not hear from him. They might not have similar connections or whatever, but just, yeah, just down the road, so to speak, I, I question how that all kind of worked. And I guess in my mind, I think people did know. I think people did know and they just didn't care. And I know that sounds bad too, but I think that they didn't care enough to want to investigate it. Like yeah. what I don't know is yeah. not going to hurt yeah. me. I'm just going to leave it alone. I think some small towns are like that. Like our small town, I feel like is a little bit more like involved in people's lives. And I don't want to use the word nosy because it's bad connotation, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like people would question things. And then I feel like there's small towns that are even much smaller than the town we're from that are more so just like, what's behind closed doors is behind closed doors and yeah. we're not going to get involved. And since so many of them, maybe even all of them knew it was an abusive relationship. They, they wanted to be naive about it. Yeah. yeah. And maybe they were just so happy for her to be yeah. out of it that they didn't care how it happened. Yeah. So like I said too, there was a lot of talk about, you know, whether the punishment fit the crime because yes, she was guilty. In my personal opinion is she should have been found guilty you know that I'm a huge proponent of the law and that is what the law says and judges can't change the law. I always get kind of perturbed at people who think, well, what did that judge do? Or even attorneys, attorneys and judges can't change the laws. So when they go into that courtroom, 
The law is what the law is. Even, even the judge in this case, Judge Smith, you know, he stated his frustration, quote, for lack of sentencing options, end quote, mm-hmm. for her. So that's, I think, where we have to go from here on this case. Yes, she was guilty, but did the sentence fit the crime? And again, the judge had no other options because there are minimum mandatory sentences for crimes, and that's what they gave. So like the juror who left, you know, she didn't think she was guilty, but was very saddened by the sentencing. And so that's where we have to start. If we believe the sentencing is too harsh, then we have to do something with our political arena there. That's where laws get changed and laws get looked at. And I would say that's fair because, you know, basically, you know, she was 36 when this happened, 39. This 50, she got 50 years and again, 35 without possibility of parole. So that was really a life sentence for her almost. Like she would have been 80 some years old when she got out. But by doing it as guilty by insanity, I think it's you not really have to. Reason. They still plead not guilty though. Okay. Like this. But I think that. I, maybe you can do both. I think maybe you can do guilty. I can believe that, yeah. And I don't know. But I, and I, but I think that insanity, that term has a lot behind it. Like you have to prove a lot of things. Well, so like this is why, and I, I, I'm surprised that they didn't do that because when you do, when you plead not guilty by reason of insanity, what happens is you don't go to jail, you go to a psychiatric hospital. And I almost feel like she needed that, you know, cause she yeah. went to a regular jail and that's where I say like PTSD. Well, imagine being in a jail with male Correctional officers, you know, I just feel like that would be scary for someone who's all she's known is being abused, abused by her stepfather and then her husband. And that also brings about is like, we as a society too have to look at why are we sending people to jail? Mm-hmm. And by sending a, a person like Dixie to jail, what, what were we doing? Were we deterring other crimes, future crimes? Because I, I don't know, I think we could all agree that I don't believe she was going to go out there and just kill somebody else. Right. Like that's not what happened in this situation. So why were we sending her to prison for 50 years? What, what was the reason behind that? And, and ultimately, again, the whole reason behind it was because the judge had no options, but should they have, should we have laws that give judges more options in cases like this, especially just, you know, domestic violence? So another quote from the judge, this Judge Smith, like many battered women who kill, Dixie Shanahan received an unjust sentence. In Dixie Shanahan's case, that injustice was largely a function of mandatory minimum sentences. Though he agreed with the verdict, denying a defense motion for a new trial, Judge Smith was frustrated by his lack of sentencing options. At sentencing, Judge Smith told Dixie Shanahan that because of mandatory minimum sentences enacted in the Iowa legislature, He did not have the ability to impose a lighter sentence like probation or suspending her sentence. Punishments he believed were more appropriate. This matter is a tragedy in every sense. You've suffered abuse, one person is dead, and now you're looking at almost a lifetime of jail. None of that is necessary. While the 50-year sentence was legal, according to Judge Smith, it was also wrong. Left without alternatives, Judge Smith was unable to exercise any discretion in sentencing despite the years of abuse Dixie Shanahan suffered, and despite his belief that a long period of incarceration was inappropriate. Yeah, I think that was a good one. Good job, Mom. 
I'm glad that you shared that one. We haven't had something like that in our previous cases, and it's a it's a good reminder to anyone out there in a situation like this that there is help. Well, and I think that's something I want to do with this podcast, Jenna, is that make it more than just talking about crime, but trying to help people who might find themselves in such a situation or help people even that know of others. Again, we have a whole town here who kind of knew this was going on and probably just didn't know what to do. There's many places I'm sure in your community. Um, I know even in our small community that we have places for domestic violence victims to go. So I just want to encourage anybody who's in this situation to please go and get help. Please, you know, tell a friend, tell a family, or just, you know, go to one of those places. But also want to just give you the national hotline for domestic violence is 1-800-799-7233. All right. Also, follow us on social media. So we've gotten a little better at posting and keeping people updated on there. And I'm loving this. I'm kind of in a contest with Jenna. She, she doesn't think she's in the contest with me. But <laughs> <laughs> I love to get followers on Facebook. And she loves to get followers on Instagram. And so. Follow us on Facebook so I can beat her Instagram. No, you can follow us on Instagram at Catching Up on Crime. I'm not, I don't even know if we have a Facebook page. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, we have a Facebook page, too. So you know what? Just follow us on both. We'll tie. All right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for another Catching Up on Crime episode, and we will catch up on crime with you in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Bye.